Hey, what's good, fam? We appreciate you tuning in to the South City Church Podcast. It's our prayer that as you hear the better story of Jesus, you might experience more of his redemptive power in every square inch of your life. Hey, we're a church plant. We benefit greatly from outside support. So if you'd like to partner with our ministry here, you can go to southcityrva.com slash give and join us in seeing strangers made family in Christ in Richmond and beyond. God bless and shalom. So if you would, if you'd find a copy of the scriptures and open with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Would you pray once more with me? God, I just pray, thanking you for your word, its integrity, its clarity, its power, the truth of your word. And I do pray, Lord, just for the remaining worship time this morning that nothing would be religious routine but it would be knowing you, encountering the truth, presented in your word in a way that brings glory to you through our lives. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there was a title for the message, it would be The Urgency of the Church. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted the Christians in Ephesus to understand when he wrote this letter. Wanted us to understand and wanted the original readers to understand when we were spiritually dead, God made us alive with Christ. Uh, One commentator on this passage puts it like this, By His amazing grace, God made our spiritually dead hearts beat. So as we drop into Ephesus or Ephesians this morning, let's get just a little bit of the background. So Paul had traveled on his second and third missionary journeys as recounted in Acts 19, and he had encountered believers. He had encountered disciples already in his missionary journeys here in the city of Ephesus. And so he's going to spend three years, three years with these already believers, Three years just teaching them, training them, showing them the gospel, showing them the truth of God's word. So he's writing them back after he had spent those three years of time. Now it's about 80, 60. He's in some form of Roman imprisonment, and he's wanting to write back to the church, to the Christian community in Ephesus, wanting to reinforce, wanting to remind them of the gospel instruction that they had enjoyed when he was there with them for three years prior to that. So we don't get a lot of other information about any controversies or dealings with the church, but there is 
um, no evidence of a, a present crisis, but nonetheless, he's wanting to reinforce, remind them of the teaching as he had served them for three years prior to this. And so wanting to remind this largely Gentile, non-Jewish church, wanting to remind them who they are now in Christ um, to what he had just written. If you look back just in uh, the first part of the letter, chapter 1, 19 through 20, he's wanting to remind them of something specific. And he says, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So if you see the repetition and the pronoun there, Paul's making a point. Paul's making a clear point. He's saying it's God's power. It's God's plan. It's God's activity. It's what God has done. Things have fallen apart and God brings it back together in Christ, with Christ. So as we, contemporary readers, contemporary hearers of this instruction from the Holy Spirit, do we believe it's the same power? Do we believe it's the same power that raises us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive? Do we believe it? Do we understand it? And then how is it evident in our lives? How is that belief evident in our lives of this beautiful truth? God's people, the church, as uh, Drew has already explained, God's people, the church, people in local contexts must urgently rely on this power, must urgently rely on the power of God to bring spiritually dead people to life. This is the most pressing issue. So the picture we get, we're going to break it down and see the picture Paul paints of spiritual death, and then we'll see spiritual life. So as we jump back in to chapter 2, it starts with and. And we'll come back to see where he's continuing from in a moment. I mean, he's saying you were dead in trespasses and sins. So he's saying dead. You were lifeless. You were unable to respond. Spiritual death was evident by constant, constant law-breaking, breaking, disobeying God's commands and laws. And he says, going on, and in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So he's like, you used to do everything like everyone who was following the leader of the world, which is Satan. You used to continually do this. The ruler of the rebellion against God was Satan, and you used to follow his ways only always. Furthermore, everyone, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So everyone is like this at one time. Everyone is in this state of spiritual death, following our, our cravings, following our spirit, sinful desires, making us deserving children of wrath, making us deserving of God's wrath, God's just punishment against the constant law-breaking, the constant disobedience to his commands. So this is the picture Paul paints. It's not one of someone who is, well, morally good, It's not a picture of someone who is, well, deep down, they're okay and they're good at heart. Not basically good. And this is the opposite. The picture of spiritual death is the opposite of what maybe we hear or we experience or people outside of the family of God might think of the default position of of mankind. Is that, well, they're basically good or there's a good nature. That's the opposite of what we see here, the picture of spiritual death. 
So we do understand there are good stuff that unregenerate, there are good things that we do even pre-Christ or people without Christ, good things we do, good grades, good friends, good money, volunteering, charity maybe, yes. And it is true, God gives us common grace where there's a restraining of evil. Everyone is truly made in God's image and it's not chaos at every turn. He does allow for a society. That's his common grace to us. But however, the picture we, we get here of spiritual death, just understanding there's nothing good in us spiritually. The volunteering, the good money, the charity, all those things, impure motives. Impure, unholy motives in those good acts. Unholy desires and aspirations, always and only. Not wanting God, no submission to his divine authority. That's the picture of spiritual death. So this picture of spiritual death, there are three things that Paul lays out that the spiritually dead person follows. First, following the course of this world. All that the world values, the influences that don't line up with God, that's the following. That's what the spiritually dead person follows, the course of the world. God gives it to us a picture of this in 1 John 2, 15-16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Loving the world, following the world. The second thing the spiritually dead person follows is the ruler of the world. So follow the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That is Satan. There's more in this letter in Ephesus towards addressing powers and principalities, and the one who influences them all is clearly shown to be Satan. So the power behind them, the prince, the ruler, in Greek, archon, the leader of the rebellion against God is Satan. So the spiritually dead person doesn't just kind of sit in between. No, they follow Satan. They follow the course of this world, and the leader of this world, which ruler of this world, Christ refers to Satan three times in the Gospel of John as the ruler of the world. And we are further sons of, spiritual, uh, sons of disobedience in this state of spiritual death. Sons of disobedience, disobeying, taking the bait that Satan lays out for us, taking it at every turn. And Paul's going to expound in, in detail what it is, this disobedience, being one of following the prince of the power of the air and being a son of disobedience, he lays it out in chapter 5 describing this disobedience, sexual immorality, all impurity, coveting, filthy speech, idolatry, dishonesty. It looks like something that looks like disobedience. It looks like death. So following the world, following the leader of the world, and then lastly, following the desires of our body. The craving of our sinful nature. So being dead is described here. It's not sick. It's not a little off, little left of center. It is a picture of death. Absolutely and completely. In verse 418 of this letter, he talks about the state is alienated from God. Alienated from the life of God. Excluded from the life of God. Nothing to do with. Completely separated from the true eternal spiritual life that is give, given and sustained by God. So this is describing the state of spiritual death. Romans 8, 7, and 8 describes it well. 
For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in their flesh cannot please God. So the volunteering, the good grades, none of it pleases God because it has unholy motives. It comes from a state of spiritual death. So the question for us, as we see this picture of spiritual death, do we believe? Do we believe in this state? Do we believe that in this state of spiritual death, as the default position for everyone who has existed and who exists, unless something happens? This is the default state of every person that's ever existed, unless something happens. Unless someone intervenes. So how do we apply this belief? I think the question is, what do we emphasize in life? had a phone conversation with my 95-year-old grandfather. Um, he lives in Missouri. We're talking on the phone, and I caught myself talking to my, my grandpa, who's 95, and I, talking about my kids, talking about my daughter's you know, school performance, what they're involved with, kind of extracurricular things, athletic performance, all these things. And I caught myself thinking, my grandfather, 95, loves Jesus. And would he not be interested in knowing if I'm seeing in my daughters, in his great-granddaughters, who he wants to see them love Jesus as well? Should I not speak to or talk to him about what we're seeing in our daughters as maybe the lack of or uh, seeing some fruits of faith in them? Would he, not be, would he not care about that? Would he not want to pray towards that more so than school success and all those things which have their place and are important? But nonetheless, the most important thing is the spiritual state of everyone. And it's the spiritual state of my daughters in the eyes of their great-grandfather. So as in parent, as in all of life, the most important thing in parenting, for example, is God. And it should be emphasized in our life. It should come out in, in how we talk and what we talk about. Maybe with a 95-year-old grandparent, but in, in regular conversation. What is the emphasis in our lives? What do we emphasize? Just understanding that who cares? Who cares if our kids or anybody have success in any realm if their state is spiritual death? If they aren't spiritually alive because of a life-changing encounter with the truth about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Lord and Savior. Like who cares about anything else? So as application for maybe seeing and being confronted with a picture of spiritual death, do we plead in prayer to God? Do we plead in prayer for those we love and know to come to life in Christ, through faith in Christ? Do we plead in prayer? So we have this picture, this horrible picture of spiritual death, but praise God for the next turn. Praise God for verse 4. The picture of spiritual life. So all this past tense language. You were dead. You once walked. You once lived. You were by nature children of wrath. The two most beautiful words in scripture. But God. But God. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So however, God is abundantly merciful and loving towards us. So isn't it sweet to see the contrast here as we get Paul laying out this brutal, horrific picture of spiritual death. It's like driving out of the city, getting away from all the lights on a clear, dark night, getting away from kind of the light pollution and seeing the brilliance of the stars. Isn't it more beautiful, the stars, and more brilliant when it's darker? 
So when we see this contrast of spiritual death, doesn't it make God's mercy and His grace that much more beautiful, that much more brilliant? Praise God for that. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So again, while we were lifeless, while we were unable to respond to anything, while we were completely unholy, totally depraved, rebels against Him, while we were in that state of spiritual death, He brought us to life through Christ. God's unmerited favor saves us from death, from spiritual death. And He raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So He regenerates us, He resurrects us to be like Jesus and to be with Jesus. Verse 7, why does He do this? This is amazing. This is an amazing reality. This is a miraculous work of grace by the Creator of the whole earth to love His creatures so much that He would do this. But He does this, why? Verse 7, so that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So our new life in Jesus will show, will show the world for all time God's grace, God's love, and his kindness. We are an example of his kindness. Another commentator puts it like this, we will be trophies of grace. Trophies of grace. God says, look what I can do with such a mess. Trophies of his grace. So the church will display Jesus to a spiritually dead world so that we can be that display of Jesus. And then verse 8 is where we'll end today. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So God's gift of new life, his gift of forgiveness is received when he gives you the gift of faith. There's no point where we get credit. There's no point where we get the credit. Titus 3, 4 through 5 also expounds on this reality. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's him. It's all to the glory of God. It's all his work. We get no credit. So is there any thought that we deserve saving? Is there any thought that we can do anything to earn God's favor? What does spiritual life look like? So if we can't do anything, we don't do anything to earn this transformation, this regeneration coming from this state of spiritual death to spiritual life. We don't do anything, but then once we receive the gift, once he gives us the gift of faith, what does it look like? What do we do, in a sense, after the fact, after God's amazing, miraculous gift of grace? What does spiritual life look like? Well, it doesn't look like sinlessness. It does not look like sinlessness. But it does look like sinning less. It is a miraculous work where we are changed, and then there's a gradual growing in Christ-likeness. It does not look like sinlessness, the believer is not perfect automatically, but it does. For us as believers, it does look like sinning less and growing gradually in that. I moved to a new house just in the past uh, year and living here, kind of the southern part of Richmond, just moved from the northwestern part of Richmond. And I caught myself the first 
I hate to say like a couple of months, um, I would leave someplace and start going to my old house and had to remind myself, oh yeah, it's, it's a different way. I need to go to my new house. So thinking of that as this work of grace in our lives, like this, this gift of faith, it needs to lead us to daily reminders, daily reminders of who we are in Christ. Um, we have to totally depend on another, and that is Christ. That's a picture of saving faith. Totally dependent on Christ, every day remembering His perfect life, remembering His substitutionary death, remembering His powerful resurrection for us. Like we worship Him, not anything we've done or can do, so I'm I'm not dead any longer. I don't live there anymore. My new home is with Christ to be like Christ. So I'm now saved and I'm alive spiritually. I have a new home because of Jesus. It is. It looks like something. It looks like reminding ourselves, and it's all God's grace to us, that we can go to passages such as this. We can go to the whole counsel of God's Word. We can be in prayer with Him daily, if not moment by moment, just remembering, God, I'm new. God, I'm, I have a new home, and it's in you. A new identity because of you. Isn't grace, isn't grace like a wonderful thing, this beautiful truth? We will progressively bear the fruit of faith. The free gift of spiritual life, it makes the call. So if this is the reality, understanding this makes the call of the church, this makes the purpose of the church in local context so urgent. So urgent. So, so that word, uh, been using that as uh, you know, an urgent call, that adjective. Let's think about the meaning of urgent. Needing immediate attention. A synonym for urgent can be life and death. Another synonym, earnest, persistent response to a critical situation. So death absolutely is an urgent matter. It is literally a matter of life and death. And we talk about spiritual life and death uh, so much more severe and serious. Chances are there's an AED, an automatic external defibrillator, somewhere in this building. Most public places, maybe you've seen them, they go in glass cases along with maybe fire extinguishers or something. Uh, expensive machine, but a, a, a good thing to have just in case if someone goes down with cardiac arrest, you can grab the AED, hook it up to them, and it brings out these voice commands. Why do we take, that's a pretty urgent um, uh, step. Uh, it's, it's not always needed, praise God for that, but again, public places in most cases have to have them. And, and, and why do they do that? Why do they take that measure, pretty drastic measure, why? To prevent death. To prevent death. To be able to uh, restore the ability to live, just in case. Just in case. So understanding like spiritual death is far more serious. The effort, the actions to respond should be much more grand. Much more urgent. So Paul's answer to the problem of death to the problem of spiritual death is the gospel. And the church is God's delivery method of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. So absolutely, because of that, we need more churches. Praise God for South City Church in this area, in this community. The Great Commission says go and make disciples, not converts. So we have to exist as churches in order to make disciples effectively, to teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. That is the role and ministry of the church and nothing else. So in this community, the southern part of Richmond, there's at best or, or, you know, at a minimum 80,000 people just in this little surrounding community. 
and just knowing that so many, so many need the witness and work of healthy churches. The witness and work of healthy churches to experience spiritual life as a result of the gift of God's grace. It's God's means of grace, His church. So by healthy churches, just just understand what I mean. There's a definition for a healthy church, one that's made up of sinners transformed by this grace. And uh, a people that regard the whole counsel of God's word as everything needed for life and godliness as they seek to obey King Jesus as Lord, Master, Savior. In other words, they take the Bible seriously to the glory of God. That's a healthy church. So we remember this passage in verse 1. It started with and. So if we look back just in the preceding verses, verses 22 and 23, what Paul had just written, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is the work of grace. This is the miracle. The free gift of spiritual life is Jesus. And the urgent call of the church is to represent Him. To represent Jesus. To speak of Him to those who are spiritually dead. So again, looking at what God can do. Looking at what God can do. He can make us who are dead to be the body of Jesus. Why? So the world may be saved. Why does He do this? So the world may be saved. So He can can save you today. If you see this picture of spiritual death and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm spiritually alive. I mean, talk to Drew, talk to someone you know here that loves Jesus and follows Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. He can save you today from this state of spiritual death. God is rich in mercy. But the urgent purpose of the church. I led a wedding ceremony not too long ago. And I remember the first time I sat down with the young couple to get married. And just asking them why they wanted to be married. And the young lady, she did not say this. She did not say, well, marriage will be fun. In response to, why are you getting married? She did not say, marriage will be easy. She did not say, I think this is going to help me out financially. I think we'll do better financially together. She didn't say any of those things. Her response was, she was convinced that they could do more together for the kingdom of God than apart. And I said, amen to that. So understanding the church together, together we represent the fullness of Jesus. There's no such thing in terms of the scriptures and what the scriptures speak of as God's people as a lone ranger Christian or just kind of someone who can be disassociated from a family of God in a local context and be about his glory. The scriptures know not of that type of person. So together we represent the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all to our community. We continue the ministry of Jesus together. So you may be saying, like, Adam, I I believe this already. This is pretty fundamental to Christianity, spiritual death, spiritual life. Well, yes, Paul had spent three years. He had spent three years discipling the church, discipling the already Christians in Ephesus. When he writes this letter, he'd already spent that three years with him. They had heard it before, so why did he write it? Why do we get to read it now? Paul didn't just sit back on this truth. He didn't just sit back and praise God, hey, I know some people know it, and I believe it. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24-28, listen to the urgency of Paul wanting to get this message about the grace of God out. 
2 Corinthians 11, 24-28, Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It was urgent for Paul to remind the Christians and to get this message going forth, going forward through churches that were being formed, no matter the cost. That's Paul's example of his urgency, this life and death message to save lost sinners. But Jesus is the ultimate example of moving towards us in love, moving towards us with the life-giving truth of who he is. Paul writes this just later in the letter to Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 9, and 10, in saying he ascended, he's quoting Psalm 68, 18 about the Messiah, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Understand, God condescended to us. God came down from his perfect home to dwell with us, us who were spiritually dead, us who were rebellers against him always and only. He came down to be mocked, to be beaten, and to be crucified. So that our dead hearts could be. So that our dead hearts could be made new and we would be a people with His purpose to live out forever. He's what we need and only He could do what we need. Jesus is the example of the urgency of getting the message of who He is, the life-changing message, the life-giving message of hope to people. So how we handle Individually and corporately, how we handle the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's a matter of eternal life and death. Jesus died for us to know that. So is he calling you to be saved? Is he calling you believer? Is he calling you to a co-worker, to a neighbor, to a family member that you know right now, to a, to a, a classmate, someone that you know right now as they sit, they are spiritually dead. And they are destined to an eternity in hell, experiencing the just penalty, God's wrath, forever. Do you know them? Who else is God going to use? Who else is going to speak the truth of Jesus? They're not going to say, well, Adam's a really nice guy. You know, I think I need forgiveness of my sins. It's not about just being nice, being a good person. At all. It's about speaking the truth of Jesus to people who are spiritually dead. Urgently delivering this saving message through the work of, yes, the local church to those who are dead. So praise God. Praise God for His power. Praise God for His grace that we get to partner with Him in this life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift and blessing it is to think on Lord, I pray be uh, reminded of the goodness of your grace, the power of the gospel, and the reality of who we are through faith in Christ. 
And Lord, I just pray that as we go from here, maybe even today, this week, that we would encounter people, maybe people we know and love, who don't know this, that have never experienced the life-changing message of Jesus, that we would be your emissaries. We would be your ambassadors and representatives, the trophies of your grace to people this week, to people, Lord, that need life and need hope. Lord, help us in that through the power of your Spirit and all for your glory. And I'll pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.